So to start this series and to start this particular sermon, I'm remembering my audience here and thinking about this last Thursday night, which for many of you was a jolt of excitement with the football season beginning. It came out with a bang, and your Detroit Lions went down to Arrowhead and gave them a smack down there. Now, moving on from that kind of celebration, let's get into our illustration. That's the most feedback I've gotten from a sermon in a long time. One of the things that you see on the sidelines at a football game are those big tubs of Gatorade. So let's take those three Gatorade coolers, three of them, put them side by side by side. You know that Gatorade comes in a wide variety of colors, but we're going to look at Gatorade that has that green lime color. All three of these Gatorade coolers are filled to the top with bright green liquid. One Gatorade cooler is filled with pure Gatorade. The one next to it, still the same color, however, it's filled 50-50 with Gatorade and the rest of the green is engine coolant. And then the third is filled with straight 100% engine coolant all the way up to the top. Now, all three of these have very similar characteristics. Uh, they're in a container that's orange and that could be used to fill up a cup. They're also the same shade of green. They're all in liquid form. And from the eyesight looking at them and seeing the container that holds them, you would think that these are all very safe liquids to drink. However, this can be a deadly moment for someone. If you drink from the one that is 100% engine coolant, you will die. If you drink from the container that has the 50-50 mix, you will still die from that. The only way to live and to have your muscles fed and your nerves fed with the electrolytes and be properly nourished is to drink from the Gatorade cooler that is truly 100% Gatorade. Galatians is a book about a need for the purity of the gospel. And there's a danger of adding something to it. Because to add to anything, to add to the gospel, is not to have the gospel anymore. You don't have it. What you have is now something new. You have a deadly poison. And so as Paul is writing Galatians, he's writing about a specific scenario where folks have taken the gospel itself of Jesus coming, dying on the cross, bearing their sins, rising again, defeating death, and providing salvation. He's writing about a context where they have taken that truth and said, now let's just sprinkle a little bit more into it. Let's add to it. And what Paul is going to say in Galatians is say, no, that is not the true gospel. But first, just a few introductory remarks as we get into the book itself. Verses 1 and 2 are our introductions, and then we'll spend our time unpacking verses 3 through 5. So just some few, um, a few introductory remarks here. <clears throat> Paul, 
the very beginning, claims that he is an apostle, but a unique apostle, not from men nor through man, <clears throat> but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Um, <clears throat> little background on apostleship. The Bible uses the term apostle in two different ways. One is a very particular sense that includes authority. One is a very general sense. What is the particular sense? Uh, when Jesus commissioned his 12 disciples to go out on their first missionary journey, uh, we find this in Matthew 10 that he called them apostles and he gave them authority to carry out his task in a very specific way. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, the term apostle is tightly associated with those 12 disciples whom Jesus had given that authority to. Uh, these men were directly sent out by Jesus. And in that way, we would say they have authority because Jesus commissioned those particular men. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, we read about the church where the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, those disciples who were commissioned by Jesus and the prophets, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. When you read the book of Acts, you see that the term apostle almost nearly is always describing these 12 disciples. We know that Judas went out and committed suicide. Matthias was added in. So you've got those 12, but it also is used of Paul. And so we'll have to look at that in just a moment. Okay, that's a particular sense. There's also a very general sense that I want you to know about where the term apostle is used. The general sense you can see from a passage like Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, where it says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and here it is, your apostle or your messenger. The Greek word behind messenger right there is apostolos, apostle. Apostle means sent one. So in a very general sense, a, a church or a, an apostle like Paul could send somebody out as a worker and they would be called an apostle as well. So you've got the 12 who had unique authority, the 12 and Paul, and then you have these other general um, descriptions of the term apostle, meaning the sent ones. So Paul, just to be very clear as we start this book, Paul is saying, I belong to the first category of apostles. I am a particular apostle. I have unique authority from Christ. This unique authority, somebody might ask, well, when was it given to him? Because he came to Christ after Christ had ascended back into heaven. So as you read about Paul's life, you see that his apostleship started on the road to Damascus. He was a very religious, devout Jew who hated Christianity. He was persecuting Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem, bring them into a court setting, and have them persecuted there. On his way up to Damascus... Jesus intersects him and appears to him in a bright light and says to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then down in verse 15, 
he speaks of Saul and says that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and king and the children of Israel. So Paul is going to be set aside. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, you just heard me use two different names, Saul and Paul. Saul was his first name. And after God saved him and sent him on in his new life, he changed his name from Saul to Paul. So Paul is saying, I want you to know in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1 that I am an apostle. And what I have to say to you is not just kind of some, some secondary generic sense of, of words that I'm going to be given to you from another church that sent me. I am an apostle. And look, look what he says. Not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Another support for Paul's apostolic authority, Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, He who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine, for my apostolic authority to the Gentiles. Another passage about his authority, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. I write this while I am away from you in order that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority which the Lord gave me. There's the authority that the Lord gave him for building up and not tearing down. Okay, so what I want you to be able to see, especially if you're new to the Bible, is that Paul is not a Johnny-come-lately. Uh, this term, apostle, has a rich meaning to it that carries weight and authority. And what Paul is doing at the very outset is he's establishing his authority, not because he has a chip on his shoulder or not because he's insecure, but because what he has to say is an authoritative message from Jesus, not from a church, and not from another man. He has an authoritative message from Jesus to that church, to us as well. And what he is saying is, basically, don't drink from any other gospel. Don't drink anything that takes the gospel and has been diluted down with other good works. Drink only the 100% pure gospel. Now what you can see in verses 6 through 8 is that this church has heard the gospel and yet they're drifting from it. So look down at verses 6 through 8. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. Well, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort or pervert or add to the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Okay, so here's what we know. We know that Paul came and preached the gospel to them, and then others were coming along and preaching 
something different than the pure gospel that Paul had preached to them. So what were some of the things that they were adding to the pure gospel? How were they distorting it? Okay, Galatians 5, just take your Bible and turn. Galatians 5, here's what was going on in this church. This is where they were going kind of 50-50, if you will, on the gospel. Galatians 5, looking at verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now look at this next statement. If you accept circumcision, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Okay, so if you are new to the Bible, I'm glad you're here. And you might be wondering, what in the world is this circumcision talk about now? If you read this text and wonder whether or not circumcision, the practice of it on your little baby boy, is morally acceptable, that's not what Paul is talking about. Under the Old Covenant, back in Genesis, moving through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, God had established a specific sign for his people. And one of the specific external signs for his people were that, was that the young boys would be circumcised. And you think, well, that's kind of weird. Why would a God have that kind of specific sign mandated for his people. I think it's because of this. Not only would it uniquely set them apart as a nation in those times, but God always has a purpose for what he's doing that points forward. And what do I mean by that? This theme of circumcision throughout the Old Testament isn't a dead theme in the Bible. Paul picks it up in Romans 2 and says, well, he who is a true Jew, he who is a true Jew is one inwardly where circumcision of the heart by the spirit has taken place. So he takes that theme of physical circumcision from the Old Testament and says, now I want you to know that those who are part of the people of God those who are truly part of the people of God, you see this physical reality back here that was going on for centuries over and over and over again. Folks, I don't think that physical circumcision equates with infant baptism today. The Bible continues physical circumcision with a spiritual reality. That spiritual reality is that the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and cuts away the sin that's there. And starts a new work in our lives, starts peeling back, and you can catch the imagery, right? Peeling back those layers and saying, I'm going to give you now a new heart. And so all along throughout the Old Testament, I think there's this anticipation as you're reading that where does this go? Where does this go? Where does this go? God's saying, hey, I'm going to accomplish a spiritual reality in all of your lives, and it's going to be internally here. I'm going to do a work that no man could ever get to. I'm going to do it through my spirit in your life. 
And so if you want to circumcise your little baby boys, that's morally acceptable. That's fine. But don't ever look at circumcision like these old people did and start thinking, well, I guess this is part of the gospel. I'm supposed to add it to what Jesus did on the cross. That's what they were doing because of the old history in the Testament, Old Testament. And Paul's saying, no, do not add anything to the gospel. So the basic gist just from the outset here is that you need to understand at this point that in their thinking, Christ was no longer enough. 100% Christ was no longer enough. We have to move over here and start adding more. And this would hopefully make them acceptable in the Jewish community. So Paul says, no, I'm an apostle, not from men, through men, but from Christ, and I have this authoritative message. What's an application for us? Folks, beware of any teaching that adds works as part of the gospel. Teaching that says, in order to have oneness with Christ or join to Christ, you must do this work. You must take this physical step. You must go through this process. I think there are faiths out there that say, yes, Christ died on the cross for our sins, but in order to be joined to him, you have to take this actual step and by taking this step, you will be joined to him. No, what, what Paul is saying, it's through Christ alone, faith in him alone. Okay, so that's introductory part number one. Introductory part number two is, to whom is Paul writing? He's writing to the churches in Galatia. Now, I've got a little map on the screen for us here. This is Paul's first missionary journey, and we believe that he made this journey in approximately 47 A.D., if you look up to the right side of the screen, you see Antioch and Seleucia right there. Antioch was the home church in Acts 13 where he was originally sent out with Barnabas. In his first journey, you can see he made it down to the island of Cyprus. You follow the arrows through Cyprus and then they head back up north to Pamphylia there. Heading further north, you see that number four and that arrow pointing up to the top of the screen. That's Antioch of Pisidia. You hear that? There's two different Antiochs. Antioch of Syria, that's the sending church. Now he's made it up into that region of Antioch of Galatia or Antioch of Pisidia. And this is where we believe that the churches that Paul was writing to in this book, there's a debate on this, but we believe that these are the churches to whom he was writing. And you can see this in Acts 13 and 14. So he gets to Antioch there, and you can read his sermon there. It's a long sermon. Jews and Gentiles are coming to know Christ, and yet the Jewish sect in that town rises up with, it says, men and devout leading women, and they oppose him and try to get him out of town. They push him out of town. He then moves on to Iconium. This is Acts chapter 14. And while he's in Iconium there, Jews, Greeks, Gentiles are coming to believe the gospel. But again, he's followed by Jewish religious leaders. They get to Iconium, these religious leaders, and they plan to stone Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas escape and head down to Lystra. There they do some more evangelism, start a church there. In Lystra, Paul shows up there 
and there's a crippled man. And he goes up to the crippled man, and with his apostolic authority, he heals the crippled man. There's a Greek religion there that is worshiping Zeus. The priest of that religion comes out with oxen and garlands and is ready to sacrifice the oxen on behalf of Paul and Barnabas. They're calling them the Greek gods. Zeus and, I don't know, just off the top of my mind, maybe Hermes, I can't remember. And they are saying, look at the gods who have come to us and done this incredible work by healing that crippled man. Paul and Barnabas are tearing their clothes apart saying, no, 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 no. The work that we have done is not about your Greek mythology here. It's about Jesus Christ who has sent us here. Well, there's a few Jews in Lystra who come together. They get Paul. They take him outside the city. They stone him, and they think he's dead. They leave him. Paul walks back into the city the next day, says he's alive, and then he leaves and goes down to Derby and does some more evangelism there. And then after that, he heads out, and you can follow the arrows where he makes it back to Antioch. So that was where he was going in 46, 47 AD. We believe that Galatians, this book, was written in 48 AD. So note the timeline. Churches planted, young infant Christians, these Jews that were following Paul around and trying to push him out of the city didn't just push him out of the city, but they brought another gospel behind him. And it's a reminder for us that Satan loves fresh meat. He loves to pounce on fresh meat. New tender believers need discipleship. There's all kinds of good truths that will distance people from God and cause them, instead of focusing on the grace of God, to focus on themselves. And that's one of Satan's tactics, where he just loves to take good moral things and say, okay, you need to trust in these good moral things that even have a biblical flair to them and bring them into your gospel. You need to take things like baptism and trust in it as your salvation. You need to take things such as communion and trust it as your salvation. If you just enter into these steps, then you are unified or joined to Christ. And Paul would say, no. Don't dilute Christ. Good moral things, steps of obedience to take, absolutely. But do not add them to the gospel. You're diluting it. So what is the pure gospel? What is the pure gospel? And this is where Paul launches his book. He has a statement right up front. We're going to get the gospel very clear. And then we'll go into, if you will, addressing the different problems in the weeks to come. What is the gospel? I have four points for you. Number one is simply this, an action that Jesus gave. An action that Jesus gave. In verses 3 and 4, it says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, notice, who gave himself. This is central to our understanding of our relationship with God. God gives to us. It's not that we give to Jesus and then get something back. It's that God in his own kindness gives to us. And we see this language throughout the Bible. God is the one who shows up and God is the one who says, here, I am giving to you. So Galatians 2.20 
Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And notice, who loved me, and notice the act, who gave himself. He gave himself for me. In a similar way, Jesus says of himself in John 10, the word give is not here, but you see the picture. He says, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life. He gives his life for the sheep. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. What's our picture of love? Paul goes back to the gospel. As Christ loved the church, and what did his love look like? He gave himself for the church. So the gospel begins with this truth. What is the gospel? We could say the gospel starts with, Christ gave, Jesus gave, you have been given to. So you think about a young man in a romantic story. He might tell his poor bride-to-be that he loves her. And if we're reading the story, and it says that he showed up at her door, knocked on her door, and placed a set of $8 Argyle socks in her hands. We'd snicker and we'd say, dude, you got no clue. But if the novel describes a young man who goes to his poor bride-to-be that he loves, knows that she doesn't have anything in order to prepare for the wedding day, and in his or under his arm is this metal box, and you can hear clinking in it, and he shows up at, his, at her door, knocks on the door. She comes to the door and he says, I want to give you what I've worked for for years so that you can have the most beautiful dress for our wedding. And we look at everything that he has stored up for years and he, clink, gives it to her. We'd smile. We'd, we'd say, that is an act of giving. The good news of the gospel brings us to this amazing truth that Jesus gave himself, everything of himself for us. And as we see those passages, the giving is characterized by a love for the people to whom he is giving himself. The bride had a deficit. She couldn't provide for herself. So that was why that husband-to-be was giving. What was the cause of Jesus giving himself for us? I mentioned love just a moment ago, but you should also think that love gives in order to meet a need. So what was the cause? What was the need? And this is point number two of the gospel. Here's the cause for our sins. All right, so Jesus gave, point number one, and point number two, it says that Jesus gave himself. Look at what he says in the text. Paul's just getting this out front, right in front of, the, of this book here, this little letter. He says, this is Jesus Christ who gave himself for what reason? For our sins. So I was reading Luther, Martin Luther, this last week. And in his commentary on Galatians, he says that these words are the thunderclaps from heaven. As is also this sentence of John, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the 
sins of the world. And so here's the thunderclap from heaven that Jesus Christ gave of himself. And you might think, well, he's going to give of himself for something good in exchange. No, 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 no. He gave himself in exchange for our sins. So a few years ago, my dad gave me a 2004 Saturn View. And he drove it from Minnesota, which had experienced all the winters there, to Michigan here, which continued to experience more winters. And recently, it came to my attention that the frame that goes from front to back underneath the car that holds up the car, it's a very important part of the vehicle, (sighs) was rusting out, not just surface rust, but was rusting out underneath. So I put it up for sale. And I was honest about it. I put on the description, very rusty, don't think I should drive it, all that kind of stuff, dangerous, blah, 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 blah. So I listed it for very cheaply, okay? And this guy comes over and looks at it, lays down on the driveway, and he sticks his hand underneath. And I told him, hey, I'm not driving this because of the rust, and my daughter's driving it. I don't want her breaking down on 31 and blah, blah, blah. So he lays down on on the driveway and does like, well, I got to check this thing out, sticks his hand under there, and I'm standing up. And all of a sudden, I hear crunch, and he had just taken that main frame. There's two main beams that go up and down this car. And he took his hand and just squeezed it and rust fell. And he just stood up and he's like, sorry, dude, I'm not taking this and I'm out of here. And I'm cleaning up the rust off the driveway. Like, thanks, pal. Another guy comes by. And I told him, hey, some dude was here just an hour ago. And that's what happened. I want you to know. He's like, I think I got somebody that might be able to reinforce this. And... Uh, He goes, here, here's $640 for this car. This is a good deal in my mind that he's getting a car that runs for $640. I guess he thinks it's a good deal that, you know, he's getting that. I'll get my money. We'll swap. We're gone. And I'm okay with that. Here's my junk for you, and I'll take some money in return. Here's the exchange that takes place. I'm happy with it today. That's not what happened with Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, and if you will, if he meets us at this table here, and we show up to the table, we're not coming with, there you go. We're not coming with, look at all of the things that I have done, and hopefully you're pleased with me. The reality is, if we look back over the last 24 hours, We can see all kinds of acts of rebellion against God, all kinds of sin from our heart to our mouth to our actions. We see it. We feel it. And Jesus says, I'm willing to meet you at the table. For what, Jesus? What do you want in exchange? As one theologian said it, the only thing that we contribute to the gospel is the sins, are the sins that made it necessary. That's what we bring in exchange for Jesus giving himself. So that's the cause. But here's the good news. It's not like Jesus was forced into this moment and said, well, I have no other option. I have to die. This was a willful exchange. And that's why Paul can say he gave himself for you out of love. 
An intentional act of love. So you take those sins that you've committed and they plague you and they've splashed up against other people and they have their own consequences, they have their own challenges and you have to work through that but you know vertically that your relationship with God, Jesus is saying, okay, come on, come on. This is the pure gospel. I don't need any of your works. I'll just take you because I love you and I take all of your sins. Come to me, believe me, trust me. Paul is reminding them that Christ took care of their sins. He died, it says, for our sins. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the sins of many. He died for our sins. Our sins can be a heavy weight about us. They can even be reason for us to think that we should do other things to win or earn God's favor. Maybe we look at that and like, God, I have to please you in order to win your favor. Luther responds to this kind of thinking. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner, therefore you are damned, then we can answer him and say, Because you say that I am a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. No, I say, for I take refuge in Christ who has given himself for my sins. We believe that Christ alone is sufficient for our sins. And that's what Galatians is about. And this is what gives us hope. So this is what kind of excites me. There's all kinds of people carrying around baggage today because of the acts, the words, the thoughts. We've got, like, the goodness for them. It's just simply Jesus died. And here's Paul saying, man, I'll travel all around this world just to let people know that Christ died for their sins. The giving of Christ for your sin is the act, is the cause of the gospel. So let's move on to the purpose. What was the purpose that Jesus sought to accomplish? Here's the purpose, point number three. The purpose is to deliver us from the present evil age. So you see it here in verse, let's start back in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What did he do? He gave himself What was the cause for our sins? Now, what's the purpose? Here's the purpose. To deliver us from the present evil age. So Jesus had a purpose in mind. I've got to deliver my people from the present evil age. Back in Exodus 3, verse 8, we see this language of deliverance where God said to his people, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. They were in slavery there. Now I am going to deliver them. I am going to emancipate them. What did Jesus deliver us from? He delivered us from, right now, this present evil age. So I've been reading a little bit on Frederick Douglass. He was a black guy. Born in Maryland in 1818 uh, as a slave, born into slavery. 
But eventually, he escaped slavery by fleeing up to New York with the help of a woman who became his future wife. And he found freedom up in New York. Now, during those years leading up to the Civil War, we could say that there were two ages in place for black people. You had the age in which slavery was existing, and so that was one option for you in that moment, slavery. You could be a slave if you were purchased, brought over, enslaved. Or there were some who lived in the north who either escaped slavery or who were actually purchased out of slavery. And so, if you will, you had slavery that was taking place and a few that had found freedom both happening at the same time to black individuals in America. Now you move forward up to the Civil War and you have Abraham Lincoln, January 1st, 1863, he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And so you have slavery legally being shut down. So that age had been pushed away and now you have a new age not without complications, but you have a new age coming in in which uh, I'm, I'm done with that. Leading up to it, though, you had two ages happening at the same time. Somebody could be in slavery and, like Frederick Douglass, move up, if you will, to a time or a place of freedom. And what Paul is talking about here is that there are two ages. There's a present evil age right here. And yet, Jesus has come to deliver us from this present evil age. And what does he deliver us to? He's going to deliver us to something new, the age to come. So, the present evil age, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That was us, Christians, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, that's taking place. And yet, there is... Also, a, if you will, an age that has come that is sprinkling itself into our time because of Christ's work. So Hebrews 6 verse 5 says, we have tasted the powers of the, here it is, aged come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I think has this, captures it well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away in his life, and behold, the new has come. And so what Jesus is saying is, I have reached down into this present evil age that is characterized by sin, that holds people enslaved, and I have come for my bride. I have come to deliver, to free my bride from slavery, from sin. And that's you, Christian. Christ came for you. He delivered you from sin and from the judgment that would take place from sin. So you can look over at Galatians chapter 5. Paul picks this back up in verse 1 and he says, hey, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to sin at all. So here's the gospel. That Christ has come and he has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be 
emancipated or delivered from sin, from the present evil age. And now we are partakers, recipients of freedom, true spiritual freedom. If you're a Christian, you've tasted this in your life. You have acts of sin that you've committed. And God comes to you and he says, that was wrong. And you don't just stand there and look at it like, you know, like roadkill. Hmm. What God does is he comes into your life and he starts doing a work in your heart, delivering you from that selfishness, delivering you from that sinfulness, delivering you from that pride. And he, he, he begins moving and creating in your life, empowering you through the new creation of Christ, through the gospel, to look at that and say, man, I'm... I'm going to repent of that. I'm turning from that. That's not the age that I want to live in. I want to live in the age to come. That's not the sin that I want to live in. I want to live in Christ. And you get to the end of that and you look back and you say, well, praise be to God for doing that in my life. Praise be to God because I chose sin in the flesh, but God wouldn't let me stay there. He came and met me where I was and said, okay, here's, here's what I've done for you. I'm freeing you from that. Which now leads us to point number four, the source. The source. Where did this all come from? Just looking at verses four and five. Who gave himself for our sins. Purpose. To deliver us from the present evil age. Where did this all come from? It was according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The source of the gospel, this was God's plan for you. For you to be saved is happening according to the will of God right now. And I would just say, non-Christian, you're here because of the will of God. And Jesus is there for you right now, and God beckons you. God calls you into himself. Will you come today with your sins and say, I believe, I believe that you're the one who will take my sins and I can be forgiven Christian, the glorious thought of this text is this. We live by faith that Jesus has saved us and delivered us from sin. We can live with the security that his giving of himself is enough for us. So we don't bring anything to this table this morning. All that we bring really is our sin. Don't bring any good works with smugness that you've done enough. And you don't have to bring works even with fear of, have I done enough? Be freed from that lie. Christ has done it all. He gave of himself. So it's Christ and Christ alone. Nothing in addition to that. Christ gave himself for you. And you have been delivered from the grip of, of this evil age. It's Christ and it's in Christ alone. Let's pray.